the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. But consider, despite the robust nature of those structures, they almost failed. It came very close. And I would suspect that if it weren't for someone as with the backbone of a Donald Trump, if he were like almost every other, with all due respect, every other Republican president that we've had, at least in my lifetime, those presidents, to a lesser extent Reagan, But those presidents were used to staying within the lanes that the media and the left had created for them. They didn't punch back. They didn't know how to rope-a-dope. They didn't know how to punch back twice as hard when punched. But for that, who knows what we would be um, with Donald Trump. Nonetheless, our culture, our government... Almost every aspect of society is under assault right now, and I still think we are at a tipping point. Maybe we've moved beyond that tipping point, which is a little bit frightening. Can we get back on the other side of that precipice? Don't know. I happen to think we can because we're Americans. But think of what the entire fleet, I mean, look at the flock of Democratic presidential aspirants that populate all the clown cars, and it's a fleet of them, because there's so many of them, carrying them toward the precipice or the primaries. And look how they've tried mightily to outdo one another in proposing literally insane policies. I'll say it again, merely because the vast majority of media do not characterize it as such does not detract from the fact that these policies are are nuts. I'm not sugar I'm not going to try to sugarcoat it and I'm not exaggerating. We talked yesterday just about the green new deal. Many of these things are nuts beyond the fact 
that they're not feasible. The Green New Deal is a pipe dream because it is bad for the country. It's based on false premises, and it is extraordinarily just expensive. Is just I'm trying to think of the appropriate adjective for this. But we're talking about minimum $10 trillion for something that may be a fiction. But reparations, Medicare for all, open borders, I repeat, open borders, post-birth abortion, voting rights for prisoners. People who are currently incarcerated should have voting rights, as Bernie Sanders said, even for terrorists such as the Boston bomber Sinayev. Let them vote. Go ahead. One of the reasons why, and by the way, we did a little bit of research on this at the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, and everybody in this audience, I suspect, understands why the Democrats want these people to vote. It has nothing to do with expanding the franchise or democracy or any of these other elevated concepts. It has to do with sheer, raw votes. And they know that 94% of convicts, if they had the opportunity to vote, would vote Democrat. Think about that. And think about what that says about that party. They also know, and the reason why we have this gigantic invasion of illegal immigrants is because Democrats believe, rightly so, that it expands their voter base. And we have data on this, too. First of all, illegal immigrants do vote. Thankfully, not in the percentages that would... um, indicate, you know, that we've probably got, no one even knows how many illegal immigrants are here, but there are estimates anywhere from 10 million to 30 million. Let's just say it's 20 million, which is the usual number we see there. We expect there to be hundreds of thousands coming in just this year, but even if a small percentage of those vote in any given election, that will tip that given election. If the influx of illegal immigrants tended to vote Republican, we would have a wall 200 feet high with machine gun turrets and crocodile moats surrounding it. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Make absolutely no mistake. There are extraordinarily powerful interests preserving open borders. Not just the Democratic Party, but a significant number of Republicans and business interests. And those of you who've heard my my spiels about illegal migrants and the the deleterious effects it has on America, but particularly low-skilled workers and more particularly black Americans, understand how harmful this is to the United States of America. You know, among other things, they want to pack the Supreme Court. And, of course, that was tried and failed back during the Roosevelt era. They'd like to replace Electoral College with the popular vote. That would not have happened, by the way, if Hillary Clinton had not gotten, and she did, got more popular votes than Donald Trump. But the genius of the Founding Fathers was that they made sure that we were a democratic republic, not a pure democracy, and they understood the importance of preserving political strength for even the smallest states and communities. If, as a number of states have done, have decided to enter into a compact to give their electoral votes to the candidate who wins the popular vote, if 
in fact, that happens. If we were to happen in, the United, in Ohio, and in fact, we came close to that, and it may happen again. There was a, at least the, the beginning of a ballot proposition, and then it was withdrawn. You would be essentially giving your vote to share Barbara Streisand and everybody in San Francisco. That's the net effect of it. So we are going to a break. When we come back, we'll re-enter this fray. And then at the bottom of the hour, we'll have Roger Clegg talking about all manner of things related to racial preferences and affirmative action. Hi again, Cleveland. Bob France Authority here, and it's Pete Kersenow substituting for Bob France. We are going to have a lot of fun today. At the bottom of the hour, we've got Roger Clegg coming up talking about civil rights generally, but more specifically matters related to the lawsuit against Harvard by certain Asian American students and also what's happening at Texas Tech. I think you'll be very interested in what's happening there. A little signs of life, maybe some... Uh, break in the clouds when it comes to the whole matter of identity politics and uh, uh, racial preferences and affirmative action. And then I um, will be taking calls, and we've got people lined up already, but we're taking calls with respect to, hey, what's your favorite? You can talk about any topic. Uh, I may not have an opinion on the topic, but I'm not uh, shy about formulating one on the spot. But we'll also be talking about your favorite movies, TV shows, rock songs, etc., authors and politicians who are conservative okay so we've got uh, just a couple of minutes before the bottom of the hour and the break and then of course roger clegg i'll take a call here see if we can squeeze one in and it's uh ryan from cleveland ryan you there hello pete yeah ryan how are you pete yes can you hear me hello i guess we're having a technical problem can you hear me now ryan I got you. It's Brian, Pete. Okay. Hey, Brian. No worries. Hey, no worries. Good morning. Nice talking to you again. Same uh, here. Switch, switch gears a little bit off politics, but um, I was curious as uh, we're, a count, or we're a state of 88 counties, how come only seven of our counties have to participate in the e-check scam? <laughs> you know, I'm not one of those. There are a lot of people that I know, Brian, that don't like all these mandates that are foisted upon us. Um, I don't get particularly exercised about uh, e-check, but I can tell you this. I think the seven counties were originally selected because those were the most, the densest counties. There was some kind of a study done to determine where the most pollution could come from, the purported pollution. And as we know now, how many cars are rejected under e-check? It's one of those things that kind of takes on a life of their own. If you are an e-check technician, I look, more power to you. I'm not trying to take your job away or anything. <laughs> But but the fact of the matter is, um, there are very few people who get rejected or whose cars are rejected. I mean, back in the day when we had old jalopies, you know, and, and rusty resonators, and, you know, I used to have an old checker cab that was converted. I mean, that thing probably spewed more pollutants than right. all the steel industry combined. But these days, you know, with the catalytic convert, you got, you got electric cars and things like that. It's just, it seems to me to be um, superfluous at best. But I think that should be all for one or all or nothing, right? Well, you know, I, I think if you're going to apply it as a state, if you're going to apply it as uh, a, a mandate, then it should apply to all Ohioans. But I understand. Like Pennsylvania. 
Yeah, well, yeah, and there are other states who've done that. And I, but you know, look, I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. Uh, they made, they did a study and it reported to to say that these are the states or the the counties that we should concentrate on. I think that they should revisit the entire proposition. The, Brian, as you know, once a government mandate is in place, it's oh, there yeah. forever. It's Frankenstein. It ambulates forever. And sometimes I think it makes sense for if there are any politicians, legislators out there listening. Take some time, instead of thinking about the next bill, original bill you want to come up with to place more requirements and strictures on us, think about ripping some of them up. Take a look at some that may need a sunset provision. My goodness, I'm a lawyer, and I can't keep track of all the regs and statutes that just apply in my area of expertise, and I read them every single day. We still pay a laminate tax on our driver's license, too. I didn't know that, you know. I yeah, a laminate fee. I'm sorry, <laughs> and they've been plastic for how many years now? Yeah, well, I was just at uh, the Bureau of Motor Vehicles getting my license renewed a while back, and what struck me is that maybe some of you guys do this again. I, I'm this is Walk not out with your paper copy. Yeah, well, th- this is not a a slam against the people who work there, but the system is one that needs to be reformed. It is so antiquated. You've got to stand in line for like 14 hours. You go in one line, then into another line. You know, you've got to go through certain exercises just to get right. the, the the modicum of information you need before you can even get a license or a, a plate. It's or a tag, a little one of those little tags. So right. I'm with you, Brian. I think that um, you know, I, if I were up to me. They should at least take a look at possibly rescinding the entire mess. And I know there are environmentalists out there who call in and say, oh, no, 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 because there are hundreds of tons of pollutants that go into the air. Well, if you can show me that, maybe I'll think about it a little bit more. All right. I appreciate your insight, Pete. Have a wonderful day. God bless. Same to you. Thanks, Thanks. very much. We are at the bottom of the hour, and I think we're going to be going to a break. And when we come back on the other side, we will have the estimable Roger Clegg talking to us about all manner of things related to affirmative action. News, opinion, insight. This is AM 1420, The Answer. Empire. Buy two windows, get two windows. Buy four, get four. There's no limit. Empire Window Company, 855-76-EMPIRE. Hello again, Ohio. This is the Bob France Authority. Pete Kersenow substituting for Bob France as long as there's not a congressional investigation and the FCC doesn't pull our license. As I indicated at the top of the hour... We're going to be talking with Roger Clegg. I call Roger Obi-Wan Kenobi. The reason is because he's omniscient when it comes to all matters related to civil rights. He testifies before every body of uh, Congress and administrative branch on these matters. He's testified a number of times before the Civil Rights Commission. He's an old friend, and whenever I need information about civil rights, I go to Obi. Roger, you there? I'm here, Commissioner Kersenow, and thank you for those <laughs> very kind words. Well, they're, they're, they're deserved, and actually there are more and more words of praise that could be heaped upon you. Roger, you are the longtime head of the Center for Equal Opportunity, and as opposed to many other organizations that have nice flowery phrases that are purporting to be descriptive, the Center for Equal Opportunity actually does live up to its title. 
And you've done a lot of good work with respect to, and we're just going to look at the narrow issue of racial or identity preferences, something that has plagued the nation for several decades now. And, uh, well, first of all, Roger, you'd been in the Justice Department. And this is the kind of stuff that you cut your teeth on a long time ago and have been litigating this, doing policy matters related to this, testifying about this. But recently, we saw some potential light at the end of the tunnel. For a long time, we were despairing that uh, racial preferences were baked in, would never, ever, ever go away, despite Sandra Day O'Connor's famous observation or hope in the Grutter case, the famous Grutter versus Bollinger case dealing with affirmative action at Michigan, that it would last only 25 years, and we only have a few more years left to go before that uh, prediction sunsets, and we had so no prospect of that ever going away. But now it looks like the clouds are parting a little bit, and I refer specifically to what's going on at uh, Texas Tech, and you know this stuff intimately. Can you tell the audience a little bit about what occurred at Texas Tech? And, and by way of background also, folks should know that racial preferences, once they're instituted, seem to go on forever and ever and ever. And nonetheless, courts have said quite explicitly that, first of all, you have to examine whether or not there are race-neutral alternatives to increasing the number of minorities in your student population, that these programs can't last indefinitely, but nobody ever pays attention to those things. But at Texas Tech, something interesting happened. Why don't you tell our audience what happened and your involvement in it? Well, thanks very much. Um, you know, the bottom line is that um, a few weeks ago, the Texas Tech Medical School entered into a settlement with the uh, Trump administration in which they agreed to stop using racial preferences in admissions to the medical school. And, you know, this is a big deal. Um, it's a big deal for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, it, it shows that the, the Trump administration is, uh, is serious in this area about enforcing the civil rights laws in a way that protect all Americans from discrimination. And it's also significant because I think um, the more schools that don't use racial preferences the harder it is for the remaining schools to justify their use of racial preferences. Right. Um, you know, Pete, as you said, one of the things the courts have insisted on is that you not use racial preferences except as a last resort. And the more schools that are out there not using racial preferences, the harder it becomes for the remaining schools to say that, well, we have to use racial preferences in order to operate. Um, you know, if, uh, for example, in, in um, California and Oregon, uh, or excuse me, California and Washington, they've gotten rid of racial preferences. So what is the reason why Oregon has to have racial preferences? And if you've gotten rid of racial preferences in uh, Arizona and Oklahoma, as we have in West Texas now, uh, Texas Tech, and what's the justification for New Mexico and Colorado to be using racial preferences, and so on. So, um, the, 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 this is good news, and it came about, uh, as you kindly you know, indicated, because 
uh, of the involvement of the Center for Equal Opportunity. We filed a complaint against the uh, against Texas Tech uh, in 2004, and with you know lightning speed, the the Education Department uh, has entered into this consent uh, agreement only what you know 15 years later. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, you know, these, these things take a while. Uh, there was a lot of back and forth. Um, but um, uh, and I think that, you know, during the Obama administration, probably uh, not as much happened as as happened when the, um, the Trump administration officials came in. I want to give a shout out to Ken Marcus, who is the head of the Office for Civil Rights at the Education Department. He's a very good man. Um and he's done great work in this area. He has done a lot of uh, very thoughtful research and writing on this issue of race-neutral alternatives that, that, that you mentioned. And the one thing I want to you know, leave the listeners with is the, the thought that if they are aware of uh, a school, K-12 level or uh, in higher education, that is using racial preferences in a, in a very hand-handed and, and um, you know, hard-to-justify way, in addition to the possibility of a lawsuit, um, they should also give thought to filing a complaint with the Education Department. Because I think that, you know, Ken Marcus is somebody who is, uh, you know, takes these complaints, you know, seriously, and, and good things can happen. I think that's a very good piece of advice. And um, as we've seen now, elections do have consequences. The Trump administration and the people who populate it have a completely different view of policy and the law than the Obama administration did or obviously the Clinton administration would do. Now, Roger, I think many in the audience uh, are not necessarily big fans of racial preferences. Uh, we know that Racial preferences are permissible in very, very narrow circumstances that can survive what's known as strict scrutiny. But it's racial preferences proliferate because, frankly, uh, the uh, elites in the country, the establishment, think that there's nothing wrong with them and this is the thing to do. And there's a political imperative also to do it. But there are some downsides to racial preferences to the purported beneficiaries, aren't there? Absolutely. And... You know, as you indicated, I've been in this fight for a long time, and to some extent, you know, the arguments have, have remained the same. I mean, you know, those of us who think that it's wrong to engage in racial discrimination, uh, you know, thought that, you know, 30, 40 years ago, we continue to, to think it. But the, the two things that have sort of come out in the last decade or so that have been somewhat, you know, new and uh, I think have sort of change the way that a lot of people, you know, look at this issue are, uh, first of all, the fact that it's becoming increasingly clear that it's not just whites that are being discriminated against. It's, you know, for example, Asian Americans, you know, in the, in the, uh, in the instance of, of Harvard University were discriminated against. And I, I think that as that becomes more and more, uh, you know, understood, it becomes harder and harder for people to, to, uh, you know, to justify this kind of discrimination. Um, but the other thing, as you indicate, is this whole issue of mismatch that, you know, not only is it a bad thing for the, the, the white kids and the Asian-American kids who get discriminated against uh, when they apply to these elite schools, 
It turns out that this is not a great thing uh, at all for the African-American and Latino kids who are supposedly uh, beneficiaries of these preferences because, you know, if you admit uh, kids who may have very good credentials in general, you know, compared to the, you know, to the general population, but if you admit kids who have lower academic qualifications, significantly lower academic qualifications than the rest of the student body, you know, guess what happens? They struggle. And they may not graduate. They may flunk out. Or if they do graduate, um, they end up uh, with much lower grades, which makes it harder for them to, to get a job. Or they end up, you know, uh, you know switching majors. And, you know, instead of, of majoring in, in engineering or mathematics, they end up, you know, majoring in basket weaving. And uh, that's not a great thing for their career either. And if, had they gone to a school you know, a perfectly good school, but where their academic qualifications were on par with the rest of the student bodies, um, they would have graduated. They would have excelled. They would have gotten good grades. They would have ended up with that um, uh, degree in, in engineering or math. Um, and so this is a, a bad thing for everybody. Uh, it's divisive. You know, as our country becomes increasingly multi-ethnic and multiracial, uh, it becomes harder and harder to, to to justify treating Americans based on skin color and what country their ancestors came from. Uh, it, it, it's just a bad system for everybody. And I think you're right that, uh, of course, you know, hope springs eternal. And, you know, I've, I've been seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, tunnel for a, a long time now. <laughs> and we, we never quite get there. But, uh, you know, I am optimistic that, uh, you know, with the – with the appointments that the Trump administration has made to the Supreme Court and uh, the people that they have in place in the executive branch, um, you know, that we may finally put an end to this nonsense. And by the way, kudos to you, too, for the great work that you've done, um, you know, at the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. I, I often characterize you as, you know, one of the two sane commissioners on the, on, on the Civil Rights Commission, and uh, uh, you, you've, you've done great work, uh, and, I, and uh, we all appreciate it. Uh, Rod, you just damaged the, your reputation in terms of making good judgments. But one of the things that CEO has done, Center for Equal Opportunity, has done a great job of aggregating data related to mismatch and the preferences, the strength of the preferences, admissions preferences. And I know that you had uh, data prepared by Bob Lerner and Althea Nagai showing that because of preferences, depending upon which school someone applies to, it is sometimes, by uh, an order of magnitude, more likely that a black or Hispanic applicant is admitted over a white and Asian applicant. And it's because, for example, in, in Michigan we saw the, the famous uh, case Gruder and Graz, which was the undergrad case. But in Gruder and Graz what we saw was that black and uh, Hispanic, uh, and, and there was a little bit of a difference in terms of the degree to which there was a preference, but black and Hispanic applicants were up to 170 times more likely to be admitted than white or Asian comparatives with the exact same SATs, GPAs, and extracurricular activities. And when something like that happens, as you just indicated to the audience, when that happens, the person being preferentially admitted necessarily is at a lower competitive level and is more likely to drop out. It's not good for anybody, um, particularly, I would think, the purported beneficiary. 
but it's a feel-good thing. I, I don't mean to you know deprecate those institutions that are doing it, but there are institutions that are more interested in populating the front of their brochure with uh, brown students than they are in what's really going on in terms of educating these individuals. And the other thing about it, and I, I hope we have a little bit of time to talk about this, is you touched upon um, the fact that Asian students are affirmatively discriminated against more so than white students in many respects. And there is right now, you talk about light at the end of the tunnel, right now there is a lawsuit pending against Harvard, of all places, uh, by Asian students. Roger, what do you know about that? Well, um, you know, you've, you've uh, teed it up very well. Um, a, uh, uh, Harvard has been sued by uh, Asian American students for the, um, uh, the, the, the fact, and, you know, Harvard does not deny that it treats people differently on the basis of, uh, of race and skin color uh, and, and, and national origin. You know, it's a matter of whether they do so uh, to such a degree that it violates the, the um, limits that the Supreme Court has put on that kind of discrimination. Now, one of the things that you and I want to have happen, I think, is uh, a Supreme Court decision that gets rid of these nebulous distinctions and just says, look, you just can't do this, period. Um, uh, because as long as you leave the door open to allowing racial discrimination, as long as you don't do it too much, uh, our elite institutions will claim that, oh, well, yes, that's, that's what we're doing. We're not doing it too much. However, um, you know, what we see at, at Harvard to, to use some of the, you know, the kinds of analysis that you were using, Pete, um, with identical test scores and GPA, um, uh, there are, um, you know, circumstances where you have a 25% chance of getting in if you're an Asian American and a 95% chance of getting in if you're African American. Um, the SAT score gap um, between Asians and Asian Americans and African Americans is 218 uh, at Harvard. Um the, the, the gap between whites and blacks, by the way, is 193, which is still substantial, but it shows that, you know, even vis-a-vis uh, white students, uh, Asian Americans are being discriminated against. Right. Uh, so, you know, we've got that lawsuit going on. There's a similar um, lawsuit going on against the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, and, you know, I mentioned the Office for Civil Rights and in, in, in Kim Marcus. They have an investigation against the Montgomery County public schools, you know, K through 12 level for discriminating against Asian Americans. There's a lawsuit that Pacific Legal Foundation uh, has has brought against uh, New York City um, for discriminating against Asian Americans at the elite high schools there. So there's there's plenty of going on, and here's hoping that one of those cases gets to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, uh, as I said before, just puts an end to this nonsense and says, look, uh, the Constitution, the civil rights say that you're not supposed to treat people differently in this country because of, of skin color and what country your ancestors came from, and those laws mean what they say, and uh, uh, we're going to stop this. Yeah, and we have a different composition of the Supreme Court. Um, unfortunately, Anthony Kennedy, for much of his tenure, could be counted on to take the correct view of the 14th Amendment and civil rights generally, but then... 
Uh, he grew in office, and when it came to a case known as Fisher versus Texas, I think he disappointed some of us who thought that he was one of the best authors of opinions when it came to such matters. Now we've got a different composition. It remains to be seen whether or not a Kavanaugh and a Gorsuch, I, I, have a, a, I think Gorsuch probably is somebody who takes uh, our view of these things, but you know it remains to be seen, and the appropriate case has to go up to the Supreme Court. Maybe Harvard will be one of them. And just think about what Roger said for the audience. Um, a 200, on average, 200-point 200 gap between whites and Asians and blacks and Hispanics when it comes to SATs, and they both get admitted, all groups get admitted to Harvard. How difficult do you think it is for the black and Hispanic students to compete against the white and Asian students? Doesn't mean they don't have the innate capacity to do it, but if they came from no, no disrespect to any schools, but let's say an inner city school in Cleveland, um, and go to Harvard versus somebody who went to Andover or Choate or Exeter and go to Harvard. That person, the first person is going to have a difficult time competing and this is, I would argue, one of the reasons why we see great inflation, the kind of proliferation of these make-work programs that almost anybody can pass. We see the dumbing down of academia, at least in partial response to the fact that there are students being admitted who, through no fault of their own sometimes, simply can't compete at that level. Roger, Thanks very much for your insights as usual. I always learn from Roger. And before you go, though, we're talking a little bit today. It's uh, Open Line Friday, and we're talking about all manner of things. One of the things we're talking about is favorite conservative movies. So I have a question for you. Which two favorite generals did George C. Scott play in two prominent movies over the last 50 years? Welcome back, Cleveland. This is Bob France, show P. Kirsten, now substituting for Bob France. We went long in that last segment. Roger had to leave um, nonetheless, and we only have about a minute before the break. We've got callers holding. I want to be fair to all the callers. Please hold on if you can through the break. We'll be back in about five minutes. I want Alex has been holding for a while, Alex, in Cleveland. I want to get to him and see if we can talk a little bit about the Second Amendment. Alex, are you there? Uh, yes, I am here, Peter. Uh, I would like to make a point. Since the NRA convention is going on right now, um, if the likes of Nadler, Schiff, Schumer, Pelosi, Bloomberg, if they ever gain power in this country, uh, let me tell you what would happen. Oh, uh, This is the reason why they want Mexican immigrants. They will give them a path to citizenship, and the path to citizenship will involve uh, being in the military. Now, if you registered a gun uh, to your address, you could get a knock on your door one day, and they will ask for your gun. Uh, a, a person of Mexican descent has a strong likelihood of using deadly force in order to do so to uh, take your gun away from you. And that is a major reason that they want the illegals from South America <clears throat> to be in this country. Alex, thanks very much for your call. I'm not sure I completely agree with you on that. I agree with you with respect to the threats to the Second Amendment. I agree with respect to illegal immigration. As you know, this is one of my big topics. I don't know that that's exactly what they're thinking. 
But we can have that conversation. I'm unfortunately, Alex, thanks for the call. I'm up against the top of the hour and we got to pay the bills. When we come back, we'll talk about movies and all manner of things. And I may riff a little bit about the subjects of the day. This is the Bob France Authority. P. Kirsten now sitting in. Thanks to all who've called. Please hold. We'll be back to you after the top of the hour. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.